Hey guys, Hunter here. Wanted to ask you a quick favor. Uh, we're really trying to grow the podcast and it would really help us if you would leave us a review. So go on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to the podcast and leave us a review. It's going to help more people find out about us. So we appreciate it. Now let's get to the show. And we're back with the Coyote Fitness Podcast. Hunter here coming to you from the mobile studios once again in Madison. And today, eh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. So I had this on my heart to share this with everyone who listens to the podcast because I think it's such an important message. And I'm going to do this solo today. So this is the first time I've done something like this. So bear with me. I'm going to be going through the book called Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. If you follow me on social media, you probably saw me talking about this. This is one of the biggest books of the year in 2023 and highly recommended by a lot of people. Um, I read this and I um, felt a lot of different things about it. But first off, I, I thought it was, you know, validation of everything I've learned over the past 15 years. I've really dedicated my life to health and fitness and learning everything I can about being healthy and also um, performing at the highest level and the intertwining of those two and trying to help as many different people learn that and just to see everything I've learned in a book um, was was really really validating to me and so I number one just wanted to share this with you if you haven't read this book I would highly recommend it read it take notes underline things um, because it can literally change your life but number two just know that what he's talking about in this book is what we preach. We preached on this podcast for almost 200 episodes. Uh, we preach it at our gym every day. It's what we embody. It's how we live and, um, it will change your life. And so, um, I would just highly encourage you to check the book out if you are interested in it. But so today what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through the book and different parts of it. And, uh, I took a ton of notes, underlined a lot, and I just wanted to share, um, what the book, um, had to say. And then also I just had some, some, some closing final thoughts I wanted to add. So, um, with that, with all that being said, let's dig into it. So if you don't know Dr. Peter Adia, he's kind of really blown onto the scene this past year. He is, uh, he's a, he's an MD and he, uh, he starts book, the book talking about how, uh, while he was in his residency, he really started having some inner turmoil about what he was doing as far as, um, helping people and trying to help people when they were beyond help and some of the, uh, what he called medicine 2.0. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and he wanted to really start helping people before they got to the point where they had to, um, need emergency help or the, you know, medication or that type of stuff. He wanted to, he thought there was a, a better way to help people live longer and better. Um, and that was preventative health as opposed to, um, waiting for, uh, you know, the medication that, that they would be prescribed once they went to the doctor. So all that, all that to say, he, uh, he devoted, he's devoted his life to helping people live longer and also live better. And so that's where, where this book came, came into, uh, fruition. So, um, I'll just kind of dig into it. He, uh, he starts, um, by talking about, playing the long game. And we've actually had a, a podcast talk, uh, titled that before, but he 
starts talking about the the four horsemen or the four biggest killers of people in modern society, and they are heart disease, cancer, uh, neurodegenerative disease, and type two diabetes and related metabolic dysfunction. Um, and so he breaks down each one of those uh, four horsemen in the book, and and we'll go into depth on strategies for each one of those. But those are the biggest killers. Um, of people in modern America. And so if we can get a handle on preventing those and not waiting until we have them to treat them, we can stand a much better chance to, to live longer. Um, so he gave a great example from lung cancer. Um, none of our treatments for late stage lung cancer has reduced mortality by nearly as much as the worldwide reduction in smoking that has occurred over the last two decades thanks in large part to smoking bans. So that's basically the epitome of what this book is about. It's not trying to treat lung cancer. Once you have lung cancer, it's trying to keep you from ever getting lung cancer by cutting out smoking. And so being able to, the decrease in lung cancer um, has been drastically um, done because of it's improved drastically from cutting out smoking, not from actually treating the cancer, cancer what we have it. So that's what we, we aim to do at Coyote is help people before they ever get sick. So help them from getting sick in the first place. I believe that our goal should be to act as early as possible to try to prevent people from developing type two, type two diabetes and all other horsemen. So that is basically the goal. Prevent you from ever getting it. Don't wait till you get it and then have to treat it. He talks about med- he talks about medicine 2.0 and he his his uh, hypothesis for medicine 3.0 is what what this book is about. Medicine's biggest failing is in attempting to treat all these conditions at the wrong end of the time scale after they are entrenched rather than before they take root. So, once again, try to treat these let's look at the four biggest causes of death. Let's try to treat and prevent them from ever occurring and not wait until they occur. So he goes on to talk about um, the difference between normal or average in today's society, and he talks more in depth later on in the book. But unfortunately, in today's unhealthy society, normal or average is not the same as optimal. So what that means is if you go to the doctor and you're getting, and he says, oh, you're normal. Normal is not good. Normal is most people are, you know, on their way to being sick in this country. And if you are going in and everything is normal, that's not what we should be wanting to shoot for. We should be wanting to shoot for optimal. Um, and so that's what we are trying to do every single day. We come to the gym and, and eating, uh, eating healthy. Um, so he, he talks about uh, the difference between medicine 2.0 and medicine 3.0. Medicine 2.0 kind of, you know, the 20th century made tremendous progress in helping people live longer. Um, while books had always trumpeted the fact that lifespans have nearly doubled since the late 1800s, the lion's share of that progress may have resulted entirely from antibiotics and improved sanitation. So he's saying that the main reason that people started to live longer in the late uh, 19th century and 20th century is from antibiotics and improved sanitation. Um, he also found in a study going back to 1900, if you subtract out deaths from the eight top infectious diseases, which were largely brought under control by the advent of antibiotics in the 1930s, overall mortality rates decline relatively little over the course of the 20th century. This means that medicine 2.0 has made scant progress against the horsemen. So basically, antibiotics had the biggest impact on 
and sanit and, and you know cleanliness, um, improved sanitation had the longest had the biggest impact on um, improving lifespan. And after that, it's been re relatively f flat if you take all those out. So, um, in order for us to improve our lifespan as a as a um, society, again, we have to start making progress on these four horsemen. And so that's uh, that's kind of what what we go into a little bit further. Um, we talk a little bit about strategy. He talks a little bit about strategies versus tactics and overall the strategy, the big overarching strategy is something I keep harping on living longer means delaying death from all four horsemen. One powerful risk factor is age. So you can delay as best you can. One of the biggest risk factors though, of developing these is age. So as you get older, you become more and more likely to, to develop these things. But overall the, the goal is to, to fight, to, um, you know, delay these as best we can. And as we get older, it'll be harder and harder, but that's what we work towards. So, um, the next section, we, he starts talking about centenarians and a study of people that live to be a hundred or, or older. And in order to be a centenarity centenarian, basically he said, the older you get, the healthier you have been. So in order to live longer, you have to have been healthier to be able to have lived longer. Um, but the older you get, the more genes start to matter. So it becomes more and more important as we get older that we become aware of the genes that we have. You can, you can get away with, um, a lot of different things as you're younger, but as you get older, getting things dialed in becomes more and more important. Um, if you want to outlive our, your life expectancy and live better, longer, you will have to work hard to earn it. It's not going to just happen. It's not something that's going to hand it to you. Yeah. There are certain people with, you know, they just have the genetics that they're going to live a long time. And there's always those people that, you know, smoke and drink and they live to 110 years old, but those are the vast minority. The vast majority of people that live like that are going to not live as long as their genetics, um, could have. So, you know, there is definitely a genetic component to it, but the longer that you live, um, the more those will start to express. So, um, up until that point, how you live is more and more important. So, uh, next thing we talk about is he's talking about living, basically studying these people. And we've seen, we've all seen these documentaries of people that don't eat as much. Um, they live longer and not eating, um, a ton of calories, you know, the, they're studying these centenarians in Italy or in, in the blue zones or whatever, and they're not eating as much. Um, and he talks about, he kind of breaks that myth down and basically goes to the fact that they're living longer, not because of those, um, the way they're eating or the way they're drinking or whatever the case may be. They're living longer because of their overall healthier. And ultimately that's what, what matters the most. Um, and so he kind of breaks that down. So, uh, we'll start talking about the, uh, the four horsemen now. Um, the first one is going to be heart disease. I'm sorry. Uh, type two diabetes and related metabolic dysfunction will be the first one we talk about. Um, so he talks about, uh, this study of this guy named Samuel Zellman, who was a surgeon in Topeka, Kansas operating on a patient who he knew personally because a man was an aide in the hospital where he worked. He knew for a fact the man did not drink any alcohol. So he was surprised to find out his liver was packed with fat, just like that of my patient decades later. This man did in fact drink a lot of Coca-Cola. 
Selman knew that he consumed a staggering quantity of soda as many 20 bottles or more in a single day. These are the older, smaller Coke bottles, not the supersized ones we have now, but still Zellman estimated this patient was taking an extra 1,600 calories per day on top of his R ample meals. Among these colleagues, notice he was distinguished for his appetite. So he had developed um, a bunch of fat in his liver simply by drinking a ton of Coke, okay? Um, then we go on and talk about Normal is not the same as healthy. The reference ranges for these tests are based on current percentiles. The, as the population in general becomes less healthy, the average may diverge from optimal levels. It's similar to what happened with weight. In the late 1970s, the average American adult male weighed 173 pounds. Now the average American male tips the scales at over 200 pounds. The 21st century average is not necessarily optimal, and that's something we talked about a little bit ago. Um, and then... Part of the problem with metabolic dysfunction is this developing of fat in the liver, which we talked about this guy, he was drinking all the Cokes and he was developing fat in the liver. If you can somehow remove the fat from the liver, most commonly via weight loss, the inflammation will resolve and liver function returns to normal. So this basically, this guy had very poor liver function and it wasn't because he drank alcohol. He didn't drink alcohol. It was because he drank Coke and he had developed all this fat in his liver. So that can be one of the biggest um, impacts on eating a very poor diet, high sugar diet is chronic inflammation starting with developing fat in the liver. So if you lose weight, not only are you losing fat off of your body, you're also losing fat off of your organs, which for longevity and health is even more important. So he goes on and talks about this metabolic syndrome. I referenced it earlier and metabolic health and metabolic syndrome is possibly the most important thing for living longer and living better. And he, he has these five, five, five criteria for metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure over one above 130 over 85 high dry triglycerides above 150 milligrams, low HDL cholesterol, less than 40 milligrams in men or less than 50 milligrams in women. Central adiposity, so basically fat around your stomach, waist circumference greater than 40 inches in men or greater than 35 in women, and then elevated fasting glucose greater than 110 milligrams. So basically, those are the five criteria of metabolic condition uh, syndrome. And so that is something that is extremely, extremely important that we start to be aware of if we have any of those symptoms we are on our way to metabolic dysfunction which can really have a drastic impact on our um, health and longevity in our life the not only it is not only obesity that drives bad health outcomes it is metabolic dysfunction that's why there's people that don't appear to be obese but they have metabolic dysfunction and they can be sick um, he goes on and talks about insulin um, insulin, we all know insulin and, um, the diabetes factors and all that type of stuff, but it is also a potent growth signaling hormone that can help foster both atherosclerosis and cancer. So insulin can also promote the growth of cancer. And so as, um, we develop, meta become more metabolically unhealthy, we also have a higher chance of, uh, developing cancer. <clears throat> he goes on and talks about type two, type two diabetes. I believe that the actual death toll due to type 2 diabetes is much greater than we undercount its true impact. P 
patients with diabetes have a much greater risk of cardiovascular disease as well as cancer and Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. One could argue that diabetes with related metabolic dysfunction is one thing that all these conditions have in common. This is why I place such emphasis on metabolic health and why I've long been concerned about the ep- epidemic of metabolic disease, not only in the United States, but around the world. So he mentioned all four, four horsemen in there, all going back to metabolic dysfunction. So the logical first step in our quest to delay death is to get our metabolic house in order. It is beyond backwards that we do not treat hyperinsulemia like a bona fide endocrine disorder of its own. I would argue that doing so might have a greater impact on human health and longevity than any other target of therapy. The logical first step in our quest to delay health is to get our metabolic house in order. So going back to what I mentioned a minute ago, the five um, indicators of metabolic dysfunction, that is the very first thing he talks about as far as getting healthy. And um, we'll talk about strategies for all that stuff in a second, but that's the first one, diabetes and metabolic health. Number two, uh, the heart. Um, we're going to talk about cholesterol for a second. It's practically a dirty word, cholesterol. Your doctor will probably utter it with a frown because, as everyone knows, cholesterol is evil stuff. Well, some of it is. You know, the LDL or bad cholesterol, which is inevitably uh, counterpoised against the HDL or good cholesterol. I practically need to be restrained when I hear these terms because, because they're so meaningless. And your total cholesterol, the first number that people offer up when we're talking about heart disease, is only slightly more relevant to your cardiovascular risk than the color of your eyes. So let's hit rewind and look at what cholesterol really is. So he goes on and talk about it a little bit more. The actual, most of the actual cholesterol that we consume in our food ends up being excreted out our backsides. The vast majority of the cholesterol in our circulation is actually produced by our own cells. So there was a faulty study that was promoted in 1968 saying heart disease was caused by eating high cholesterol. There's going later on the same scientist who did this uh, study come out and said there's no connection whatsoever between cholesterol and food and cholesterol and blood. Key said in 1997 interview none and we've known that all along cholesterol and the diet doesn't matter at all unless you happen to be a chicken or a rabbit. So the study was done on chickens or rabbits had an impact on them doesn't have an impact on people. So that's something that for whatever reason people still cling to even though the guy who did the study in 1997 said there was no no impact on dietary cholesterol and cholesterol in the body. Fully half of all major adverse cardiovascular events in men and a third of those in women, such as heart attack, stroke, or any procedure involving a stent or a graft occur before the age of 65 in men. One quarter of all events occur the, before the age of 54. So you got to get working on this stuff early. You can't wait till you get older. Over half happens before the age of 54. So that's something that's extremely important that we start working on. So he starts talking about uh, LDL, but the key factor here is exposure to ApoB tag particles over time. This gets a little complex. I would recommend if you're interested in this more, go read it in the book. To gauge the true extent of your risk, we have to know how many of these ApoB particles are p- circulating in your bloodstream. That number is much more relevant than the total quantity of cholesterol than these particles are carrying. So he's saying that the total number of cholesterol is not nearly as important for determining um, risk for heart disease as uh, ApoB protocols. He said, I have patients walking around whose lipoprotein panels read like a descendants with sky high LDLC and ApoB, but by every single measure that we have, calcium score, CT, and angiogram, you name it, they show no dis- sign of disease. So, so this is something that hit home for me. 
Um, high cholesterol is in my family. I had a CT angiogram and I had no buildup in my um, bloodstream whatsoever. Um, and so that's something that I will continue to do. But he talks about those are extremely important for, you know, being on top of this stuff and, and getting getting ahead of it before um, before it gets out of control. And like I said a minute ago, um, you got to get started on it earlier. Uh, so he said um, when he was um, thin, skinny fat, as he called himself, I was insulin resistant and enormous risk driver for cardiovascular disease. Insulin resistant, going back to metabolic dysfunction. Enormous risk for cardiovascular disease. <clears throat> Evidence is piled up pointing to APOB as far more predictive of cardiovascular d- disease than simply LDLs. See the standard bad cholesterol measure goes in on that again. I take a very hard line on lowering APOB. So basically, when he's um, working with his patients, he's trying to lower their APOB. When we talk about hereditary factors uh, for heart disease, which, you know, that is something that's very, very prevalent when people, you know, are talking about heart disease, you know, it's something that you need to look for if you have it. Elevated LPA is the first thing I look for. It is the most prevalent hereditary risk factor for heart disease and its dangers, amplified by the fact that it is still largely flying under the radar of Medicine 2.0, although that is beginning to change. And he goes on to talk about how to reduce cardiovascular uh, risk, how to reduce cardiovascular risk, If we all maintain the APOB levels we had when we were babies, there wouldn't be enough heart disease on the planet for people to know what it was. So if we could maintain the same levels we were born with, there would never be any heart disease. My first step in controlling my own cardiovascular risk was to begin to change my own diet so as to lower my triglycerides, a contributor to APOB when they are high as mine were, but more importantly, to manage my insulin levels. Going back, insulin levels, metabolic dysfunction, same thing. So going back, we talked about um, metabolic dysfunction and type 2 diabetes and developing diabetes. We've talked about heart disease, and we finished by saying improving your metabolic health is going to help you with both of those. All right, so next one, we're talking about cancer, obviously the big one. Most people think cancer is just something that happens. So here's a, here's a story he let off. Uh, the, the chapter was Steven Ro- Rosenberg was a young resident when he encountered a patient who did um, on rota- while he was on rotation in 1968. This man had had a ver- virulent and untreatable cancer that should have killed him quickly. He had received no treatment whatsoever for his disease from us or from anyone else, and he had been cured. So basically he saw the major cancer. The guy left. They didn't treat it at all. He came back, and it was completely gone. How could this be? He was misfired. He eventually came up with hypothesis. He believed that D'Angelo's own immune system had fought off the cancer and killed the remaining tumors in his liver the way you or I might shake off a cold. His own body had cured his cancer somehow. So if how how did this guy's body cure cure his cancer? <clears throat> so what is cancer? Contrary to popular belief, cancer cells don't grow faster than their non-cancerous counterparts. They just don't stop growing when they are supposed to. So basically they were not signaled to stop growing. They just keep growing. They don't grow faster. They just don't stop growing. When you hear the sad story of someone dying from breast or prostate cancer, or even pancreatic or colon cancer, they die because the cancer spread to other more critical organs, such as the brain, the lungs, the liver and bones. When cancer reaches those places, survival drops precipitously. So there's some forms of cancer that if they're caught quickly, they can be fairly treatable, 
but once they spread, they become, um, you know, it becomes too late. This is why he goes into why it's important to be able to um, try to find these stuffs on such an early stage. The first such hallmark is the fact that many cancer cells have an altered metabolism consuming huge amounts of glucose. Second, cancer cells seem to have an uncanny ability to evade the immune system, which normally hunts down damaged and dangerous cells, such as cancer cells, and targets them for destruction. Cancer cells consume huge amounts of glucose, sugar. It has gotten harder and harder to ignore the link between cancer and metabolic dysfunction. I suspect that the association between obesity, diabetes, and cancer is primarily driven by inflammation and growth factors such as insulin. We keep going back to it over and over and over again. What I'm saying is that we don't want to be anywhere on that spectrum of insulin insulin resistance to type 2 diabetes where our cancer risk is clearly elevated. Getting our metabolic health health in order is essential to our anti-cancer strategy. Cancer cells metabolism is a valid target for therapy, but that that a patient's metabolic state can affect the efficacy of a drug. Not only is it going to keep us from doing it, but if we have, if we do have cancer, our metabolic health is going to affect how impactful that therapy is. While it's not guaranteed to work on such patients at work on Michael turning his immune system against his tumor and eventually eradicating all signs of pancreatic cancer in his body. So this is a progressive um, treatment that they did on a guy and actually got his immune system to kill the cancer in his body. You can read more about that in the book. It's very interesting. So we go back to it. Even cancer, increased chance of cancer from metabolic dysfunction, elevated insulin levels. All right, the last one, um, memory, Alzheimer's. Um, this is something that, that hit home, hits home for me. My, my grandmother had dementia, so this is something that's something that we, um, as a family have talked about, really try to be on top of, um, this is the hardest one to determine because I think it has the biggest genetic component of it. Um, and it's also the one that has the hardest, they had the hardest time of figuring out, you know, ways to, to cure it. Um, he starts by talking about Parkinson's. There is a parallel concept known as movement reserve that becomes relevant with Parkinson's disease. People with better, better movement patterns and a longer history of moving their bodies, such as trained or frequent athletes, tend to resist or slow the progression of the, of the disease of Parkinson's as compared to sedentary people. So athletes, people used to move in their body, um, coordination, uh, body coordination, they slow the progression of, of Parkinson's. Uh, the key insight was that robust blood flow seemed to be critical critical to maintaining brain health. Robust blood flow. How do we get robust blood flow? Intense exercise. There is some evidence that supplementation with the omega-3 fatty acid DHE found in fish oil may help maintain brain health, especially E4, E4 characters. I mean, we talk about fish oil all the time. I take fish oil every day. Improve brain health from fish oil. I now tell patients that exercise is full stop and hands down the best tool we have in the neurodegeneration prevention toolkit. Hands down the best toolkit for maintaining your brain capacity and brain ability is exercise. 
The best interpretation I can draw from the literature suggests that at least four sessions per week of at least 20 minutes per session at 179 degrees Fahrenheit in a sauna or hotter seems to be the sweet spot to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by about 65%. We have a sauna. A lot of people ask, what's what's the benefit of a sauna? <clears throat> Not only is it going to help your cardiovascular system and your endurance, but it's also going to help your brain function. All right, so that's that's the four, um, the four horsemen kind of talking about um, strategies for them. Then he goes into exercise. Okay, so this is uh, obviously this is what we do at Coyote Fitness. We're big believers in exercise. I'm just going to kind of talk about the things he points out the most that are more important for exercise. Not surprisingly, there is a high degree of overlap between the overnourishment camp and those with poor metabolic health, but I've taken care of many thin patients with metabolic problems as well. We talked about that earlier. Almost always, though, poor metabolic health goes along with being under-muscled, which speaks to the interplay between nutrition and exercise. <clears throat> I'll, I'll say that again. Poor metabolic health goes along with being under-muscled. We talk about body composition and muscle mass, the prioritizing muscle mass over and over and over again. It goes hand-in-hand with um, metabolic function or dysfunction. More than any other tactical domain we discuss in this book, exercise has the greatest power to determine how you will live out the rest of your life. Exercise has the greatest power to determine how you will live out the rest of your life, more than any other thing he talks about in this book. Going from zero weekly exercise to just 90 minutes per week can reduce your risk of dying from all causes by 14%. It's very hard to find a drug that can do that. 14% 14% going from zero weekly exercise to just 90 minutes per week. That's 30 minutes, three times a day. Reduce your risk of dying from all causes by 14%. Study after study has found that regular exercisers live as much as a decade longer than sedentary people. A decade. You can add a, literally a decade to your life just by exercising regularly. It turns out that peak aerobic cardio respiratory fitness measured in terms of VO2 max is perhaps the single most powerful marker for longevity. I've talked about that before on the podcast, VO2 max. Single most powerful lo- marker for longevity. Poor cardiorespiratory fitness carries a greater relative risk of death than smoking. Poor cardiorespiratory fitness carries a greater relative risk of death than smoking. So you're better off smoking and exercising than not exercising and not smoking. Being unfit carries a greater risk than any of the cardiac risk factors examined. Being unfit carries a greater risk for heart attack and mortality than any of the cardiac risk factors examined in, in this study he, he mentions on page 222. Subjects with low muscle strength were at double risk of death in another study. Low muscle strength, double risk of death. Uh, exercise is so effective against disease of aging, the horseman, that has often been compared to medicine. By about 80, the average person will have lost 8 kilograms of muscle or about 18 pounds from their peak but people who maintain higher activity levels lose much less muscle more like three to four kilograms on average while it's not clear which direction the causation flows here i suspect it's probably both ways people are less active because they are weaker and they are weaker because they are less active we talked about muscle mass and falls multiple times on the podcast Eight hundred thousand older people are hospitalized for falls each year according to the cdc 800,000 people. So exercise, you know, it is literally the most important thing you can do, according to Dr. Peter Adia, to not only fight the four horsemen of disease, but also live longer. Um, 
Here's a quote. I see that a lot of my own patients, they trade health for wealth, then they reach a certain age and realize they are on a bad path. So this is something I see every single day. You know, people come in, they don't want to pay the price to join the gym. They're going to do it on their own. Um, at Coyote, we're in helping people get the best shape of their life. That is our goal. And so in order to do that, part of that is being able to pay coaches who are full-time to be able to spend time doing this and invest to learn and get better and grow. And also by paying more, people are going to be more invested. The number one goal is for us to get people in the best shape of their life. And you know, this whole book I've, I've talked about it for 30 minutes, how important exercise is <clears throat> for helping people live longer and live better. And so many people will pinch pennies to save so they don't have, you know, not go to the gym or go to the cheaper gym or go, I'm going to do it at home. I'm buy equipment and go home. And he says directly, I see my own patients. They trade health for wealth. They're trading their health for wealth. They're saving, they're trying to, to pinch me, you know, not spend as much money on their health so they can generate more wealth or buy other things. Then they reach a certain age and realize they are on a bad path. They've made a mistake. Don't make that mistake. This is the most important thing you can do for living longer is exercising or exercising the right way. So that's exercise. Let's talk about nutrition. What are our goal? What is our goal with nutrition 3.0? I think it boils down to the simple questions. These three questions. Are you undernourished or overnourished? Are you undermuscled or adequately muscled? Are you metabolically healthy or not? The correlation between poor metabolic health and being overnourished and undermuscled is very high. Hence, for a majority of patients, the goal is to reduce energy intake while adding lean muscle. Losing... <laughs> eating fewer uh, calories while putting on muscle. That's what we do on the Beach Body Challenge every single time. This means we need to find ways to get them to consume fewer calories while also increasing their protein intake and to pair this with proper exercise. I'll say that again. We need to find ways to get them to consume fewer calories while also increasing their protein intake and to pair this with proper exercise. This is the most common problem we're trying to solve around nutrition. The most com common problem, eat less, eat more protein, exercise more. He, talk, he goes on and talks about nutrition studies, and this is why there's so much conflicting evidence online about nutrition. Humans are terrible study subjects for nutrition because we are unruly, disobedient, messy, forgetful, confounding, hungry, and complicated creatures. People can't even remember what they ate yesterday for breakfast or lunch. They're, they're, you're not going to be able to study consistently, or you can manipulate the study to, what, to find whatever you want to, and that's what happens with the nutrition studies consistently. This is another problem in the world of nutrition. Too many people are majoring in the minor and minoring in the major, focusing too much attention on small questions while all but ignoring the bigger issues. Paleo, keto, high fat, low carb, low carb, high, high, high fat. Different types of foods to eat. All of those are majoring in the minors. If you just focus on protein intake, proper calorie input, and exercising, you're going to have, you're going to do everything you need to do. That's all there is to it. <clears throat> he goes on to talk about alcohol. Okay. People that live longer because they drink alcohol. This notion has become almost an article of faith in the popular media, but these studies are also almost universally tainted by healthy user bias. That is the people who are still drinking in older age tend to do so because they are healthy and not the other way around. They're still drinking when they're older because they're healthy and they're not, they're not older because they're drinking and they're not healthy. 
Similarly, people who drink zero alcohol often have some health-related re- re- health reason or addiction-related reason for avoiding it. And such studies also obviously exclude the, those who have already died of the consequences of alcoholism. So, when we're picking out a diet, there are two issues at play here. The first is compliance. How well can you stick to the diet? That differs for everyone. We all have different behaviors and thought patterns around food. The second issue is how a given diet affects you with your individual metabolism and other risk factors. That these are too often ignored, and we end up with generalizations about how diets don't work. Often what it really means is that diet X or diet Y doesn't work for everyone. So it's finding something that works best for you. Um, it goes on to talk about calories matter. Calories are... The, you know, one of the most important things we're trying to figure out when we're setting diet. We've talked about that a million times on the podcast. <coughs> um, one more, one more mention on, um, on, uh, alcohol. Alcohol serves no nutritional or healthy purpose, but is a purely hedonic pleasure that needs to be managed. It's especially disruptive for people who are overnourished for three reasons. It's an empty calorie source that offers zero nutrition value. The oxidation of ethanol delays fat oxidation, which is the exact opposite of what we want if we're trying to lose fat mass, and drinking alcohol is very often leads to mindless eating. I believe that drinking alcohol is a net negative for, for longevity. Net negative for longevity. Talks about fasting briefly. We get this question about um, um, fasting. Uh, he says fasting is not a good option. The real art is finding the best mix of macronutrients for a patient that is sustainable. Um, talks a little bit about protein. Uh, <clears throat> remember the study we discussed that looked at the effect of strength training in 62 frail seniors, the subjects who did only strength training for six months gained no muscle mass. What I didn't mention, there was another group of subjects was who was given protein supplementation via a protein shake, whose subjects added an average of about three pounds of lean mass. The extra protein likely made the difference. So 62 frail se- seniors worked out for six months and a group of them didn't gain any muscle. And the and another group, all they did was have a protein shake after they worked out, and they gained three pounds of muscle. I've said that so many times on this podcast, or just people in general. Just add a protein shake after your workout can be a game changer as far as changing your body composition. More than one study has found that elderly people consuming the recommended daily amount of protein, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram per day, end up losing muscle mass even in as short a period as two weeks. It's simply not enough. Recommended daily amount of protein is not enough. You need to add more protein. Body weight in grams is what we shoot for. So if you weigh 200 pounds, 200 grams is what we're shooting for there. So talking about fasting a little bit more. And this is something that I've said before. Another drawback is that you're virtually guaranteed to miss your protein target with this approach. This means that a person who needs to gain lean body mass, which is most people, should either abandon this approach completely or consume a pure protein source outside their feeding window. So adding protein shade outside your feeding window if you are doing fasting. Also, it's very easy to fall into the trap of overindulgent during your feeding window and mindlessly consume, say, a half gallon of ice cream in one sitting. Taking together this combo of too little protein and too many calories can have the exact opposite effect that we want, gaining fat and losing lean muscle mass. In my clinical experience, this result is quite common with people who are doing intermittent fasting or fasting. If you're following a fasting diet, it is worth thinking about whether prolonged fasting periods are actually making it harder to maintain muscle mass and physical activity levels, which are known to be very important factors for long-term health. Um, All right, so... Last couple of things. I know we're running really long here. Talk about sleep. Okay. Um, sleep 
extremely important. In one study, Stanford basketball players were encouraged to strive for 10 hours of sleep per day with or without naps and to abstain from alcohol or caffeine. After five weeks, their shooting accuracy had improved by 9% and their sprint times had also gotten faster. More sleep in just five weeks, they improved their shooting um, by 9%. Studies show that people who are more sleep deprived tend to have a higher likelihood of indulging in a fourth meal late in the evening. I think we can all relate to that. Good sleep may help mitigate some of the genetic risk of heart disease faced by people like me. Good sleep can help <coughs> mitigate the risk, genetic risk of heart disease. When we're deprived of REM, studies have found we have a more difficult type time reading other people's expressions. Okay, so here's something that I know some people take Ambien, some people take Lunesta, sleep medications. Sleep medications such as Ambien and Lunesta do not promote healthy, long-lasting sleep so much as they tend to promote a sleep-like state of unconsciousness that does not really accomplish much, if any, on the brain healing work of either REM or deep sleep. One study found that Ambien actually decreased slow-wave sleep, which is deep sleep, without increasing REM, meaning people who take it are basically trading high-quality sleep for low-quality sleep. So if you're taking sleep medication, you're just basically, you're unconscious. You're not getting the benefits of, of getting more sleep. He also talked about circadian rhythms. A morning person and a night owl have different circadian genes. Knowing your own circadian rhythm is very important. <coughs> caffeine. The half-life of caffeine in the body is up to six hours. So if we drink a cup of coffee at noon, we will still have half a cup's worth of caffeine in our system at 6 p.m. If you're having trouble sleeping, simply cutting out caffeine or cutting it out stop drinking earlier in the day can have a big impact. One of the primary techniques that doctor used to treat to that doctors use to treat patients with insomnia is actually sleep restriction, limiting the hours when they are allowed to sleep to six or less. This basically makes them tired enough that they fall asleep more easily at the end of the day and hopefully their normal cycle sleepers restored. So if you have trouble falling asleep, one thing you can do is make yourself stay up for a while until you get so tired that eventually you fall asleep. Last section, he talked about mental health. I thought this was fascinating and something that I've learned a lot in my last five to six years of my own personal journey. This quote on page 383, why would you want to live longer if you're so unhappy? And that really, that was really big for me. Really, really made you think, why would you want to live longer if you're so unhappy? Not, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm unhappy. Or I'm very happy, but I'm just saying that that is something that we spend so much time thinking about health and fitness and longevity and we don't think about, well, are we actually enjoying the time that we are on, the, that we're alive? He talked about trauma. Trauma, big T or little T, means having experienced moments of perceived helplessness. This situation in question may or may not have been life or death, but to a child with an undeveloped brain, it may seem that way. Um, and then there are four branches, branches of the trauma tree. Number one, addiction, not only devices such as drugs, alcohol, and gambling, but also to socially acceptable things such as work, exercise, and perfectionism. Number two, codependency or excessive psychological reliance on another person number three habitually habituated survival strategies such as propensity to anger and rage number four attachment disorders difficulty forming and maintaining connections or meaningful relationships with others so all those are responses to trauma that happened when we were kids that we couldn't process because our brains weren't fully formed <clears throat> he, he talked about this and this is something that i've thought a lot for myself Somewhere along the line in a random airport on a long work trip, I picked up David Brooks' book, 
the road to character on the plane, I read the part where Brooks makes a key distinction between resume virtues, meaning the accomplishments that we list in our CV, our degrees and fellowship and jobs versus eulogy virtues, the things that our friend and family will say about us when we are gone. And it shook me. How much time do I spend and how much time do we spend thinking about our careers and our personal goals and everything and and not enough time thinking about, well, how am I impacting the people around me that matter the most? Something I've thought a lot about recently. <clears throat> he talked about one thing that really helped him in his own mental health. I was assigned to write out a list of 47 affirmations representing one positive statement about myself for each day of my life, and he said he couldn't do it. And then with some help with the therapist, he was able to do it. True recovery requires probing the depths of what shaped you, how you adapted to it, and how these adaptations are now serving you or not in my case. The biggest mistake of all is to believe that you're cured by a few months on a drug or a handful of therapy sessions when in fact you're not even halfway there. It's always a constant process. I needed to increase my distress tolerance in order to regain control over my emotions, and the better I regulate my emotions, the less I need to rely on that distress tolerance. Um, better regulation of uh, emotions. So that's uh, the mental health section. There's a lot in there, but I'll let you guys dig into it if you want to. Um, Finally, epilogue, last page. He talked about why he wanted to live longer. I wanted to live longer, I think, only because deep down I knew I needed more runway to try to make things right, but I was only looking backward, not forward. I think people get old when they stop thinking about the future. If you want to find someone's true age, listen to them. If they talk about the past and they talk about all the things that happened that they did, they've gotten old. If they think about their dreams, their aspirations, what they're still looking forward to, they're young. Here's to staying young even as we grow older. So um, 45 minutes on a, on a book by myself. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I like This book is just amazing, amazing to me. I, I recommend it to everyone. Um, but if you don't want to read it, hopefully that was a good enough summary and really hit the, the finer points there for you. Um, before we move on, I did want to mention one thing. I just couldn't help but think. Um, Greg Glassman talked about all this stuff 20 years ago. This is the reason he founded CrossFit was was for all this. And um, in my opinion, the, the CrossFit methodology of training is better than the methodology of training that he talks about in his book, which is why I didn't go into a whole lot of uh, depth on it. Constantly varied functional movement, relatively high intensity. He talked, Dr. Peter Adia talked about the most important thing is exercise um, for longevity and health. Well, if you do constantly varied functional movement at relatively high intensity over an extended period of time, you will put on muscle, you will, will lose body fat, you will decrease your risk at diseases. Greg Glassman's big, one of his biggest things was off the couch, off the carbs, hitting on exactly what we talked, he talked about in the book. Insulin sensitivity was one of the biggest things that you learn about in your CrossFit level one. Somewhere along the way, CrossFit stopped being about health and started being about kipping pull-ups and hurt shoulders. That's something that I wrote down, and I've been thinking about that a long, a long way. Greg Glassman had a message that can literally tra- change people's lives, and that's why I fell in love with it in 2010, while so many other people fell in love with it. Somewhere along the way, it quit being about living longer and living better, and it came to be... How fast can we do a workout? And I know the CrossFit games are awesome and it gets people involved and engaged in it. And it's what we love about the competition side of things. But um, hopefully we can remember ultimately what it's all really about is living longer, living better, fighting 
health, fighting disease, um, and um, having an impact on those around us. So with that being said, I'm, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap this, this, this podcast up. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal book, Outlive by Dr. Peter Adia. Recommend it to everybody or listen to it. Um, last segment, Outside the Box. I know you guys wanted to hit that. Um, so first podcast of the year. I, if you go, um, I'm just going to combine to my recommend since we've gone for so long here. I'm posting a top 10 books that I read last year on my Instagram, Hunter Owen CF for Coyote Fitness. If you find that, I will have my top 10 books of the year. That'll be my, my weekly recommend for you. So if you're interested in the best books I read <clears throat> over the past year ranked, go check it out. Um, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let me know your thoughts. This is obviously the first time I've done something like this, but, uh, I just thought the message was too important not to share. So thank you. And we will catch you next time. silky smooth sounds.